0: Welcome to Are You Mental, a podcast about mental health. My name is Mick Andrews, and today we're talking all about narcissism. Now, sometimes I choose topics because I genuinely think they're going to be helpful to people. And to be honest, sometimes I just choose topics that are downright fascinating. And this is one of those times. I mean, what causes people to think they're God's gift to the world? Do narcissists get what's coming to them, or do they just end up ruling the earth? And the not-so-comfortable question of... How narcissistic am I? And if you, like me, have at least one individual in your life who expects everything and everyone to just orbit around them, then this episode should give you some insight into them. And even though this episode was born out of fascination, I know now that it's actually going to be very useful to a lot of people as well as you may know i'm crowdfunding to help make season three of are you mental so if you want to help out with that you can go to gofundme.com and search are you mental it's all pretty easy i know this episode's a little bit on the long side but i was really struggling to cut any more out of it because it's just such fascinating and insightful stuff so buckle in We're going to talk to Sarah, who spent 13 years married to a narcissist.
1: I still remember on my wedding day, as my dad was walking me down the aisle, he turned to me and said, it's not too late to back out.
0: And our favourite psychologist, Nettie Cullen, will give us insights into what narcissism is all about.
2: You'll be the centre of their universe while you're meeting their needs, but when they don't need that anymore, then you
0: don't exist for them. And I spent a ridiculous amount of time scouring the earth to find a narcissist who admits to being a narcissist and is happy to talk about it. Now, I don't want any jokes about which country I found this person in,
3: please. She just called me a narcissist. She was like, it's so damn hard to live with a narcissist. So I got on Google, the signs and the traits and the symptoms came up and I was like, wow, this is me. So if you throw the word narcissism into Google,
0: you'll quickly learn that it involves an excessive amount of self-interest, makes sense. And if you include the word psychology in your search, it will talk about an unreasonably high sense of self-importance, a need for constant attention and admiration, a lack of empathy for others, a preoccupation with success, beauty or power, and a strong sense of entitlement. But talking with Nettie, I discovered there's a bit more to it than that.
2: Because it's actually a disorder of of self-esteem, and the reality is more that the person with um, presenting in that kind of narcissistic way is actually more commonly the most insecure person in the room.
0: Oh, really?
2: But they've developed a way of defending themselves against that insecurity.
0: Right, so the bluster is to hide the lack of self-worth.
2: Yeah, I often think about it as like a puffer fish that's Mm. swimming happily Mm. through the ocean and then a threat appears and and this little puffer fish turns into this massive spiny mm. creature. Mm. And it's all there to, to defend themselves against the perceived threat. That sort of grandiosity the
0: Can you explain grandiosity briefly? Because it's a big word and I'm not sure yeah. I know what it means.
2: <clears throat> it's it's having an overinflated um, representation of how wonderful I am. Or how special, unique, how exceptional I yeah. am. Okay. So I'm the best, I'm the most beautiful, I'm the most successful. Or, on the other hand, I'm the most maligned, I'm the most victimized, I'm the, the hardest done by.
0: Right. One
2: way or another, I'm special and unique.
0: So self-importance.
2: Yes, yeah, yeah. But, but being so important because I've, I'm so much more than everybody else, Mm. whether it's I've suffered more or I've achieved more Mm. or I'm more beautiful or I'm Mm. smarter or I'm...
0: So special in some way. Very special. Even if there's a negative side to it. Yes. And I've, like I said, I've been down a rabbit hole or two in this research process Mm. and one of the rabbit holes is people who have been the partners of narcissists Mm. and they get, they talk about supply. Yes. You are their supply. Yes. It's like a drug. Like a vampire with blood. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And and your admiration Mm. is like their... Like you say, they're drug.
2: Yeah, and and very much like an addiction, the person becomes addicted to that validation and admiration and and reverence.
0: And just needs more and more of it.
2: Yes. And so like any addiction, you know, there's nothing wrong with having a glass of wine, but if that's becomes the overriding preoccupation in your life, it becomes a problem.
0: Yes, and you might just stop at nothing. Hmm. So you might be, let's say, hypothetically, a really rich, successful businessman and go, that's not enough. I need to run the most powerful country in the world. Like, (laughs) I, I, (laughs) you know?
2: You know, I will just say that um, (laughs) in some interesting studies of American presidents, most of them are narcissists, not just one.
0: So have we answered the question of what narcissism is?
2: Well, narcissism is the drive that we all have to some degree or or another to feel special, unique, exceptional.
0: Yeah, I've got some of that. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Am I a narcissist?
2: Not necessarily because that's actually a very human and actually helpful trait within
0: reason. So you're saying it's, it's a spectrum essentially.
2: Yeah. We're all on a spectrum from no narcissistic traits whatsoever, which has its own problems, Mm. right through to having such a high degree of narcissism that it interferes with our daily life and our relationships and it wreaks havoc.
0: Right, so some people will absolutely prioritise above the people around them, their loved ones, their family.
2: Above everything else.
0: the, the, The drive to be seen to be amazing.
2: Yes, and they do that to defend themselves against the, f- the fear that I'm not at all amazing, mm. that I'm insignificant, I'm unlovable, and that that's a deep insecurity.
0: Will they know that?
2: No, mm. most of the time they don't realize that.
0: Mm. It's kind of sad in a way. <laughs> yeah. You know? Well, and I guess sad how misunderstood people must be because I think of the word narcissist, and, and to be honest, some other not so friendly words are the next thoughts I have, you yeah, know, like
2: exactly, so it's kind of hole, you know. <laughs> that's right, and it's quite ironic in a way because what is at the core of this is a human being with a deep insecurity and a longing to to feel safe and secure, and yet all of these behaviors and all of these symptoms, if you like, often only act to push people away. and and alienate and and they never get the needs met that they really need met and instead they invest in being the special, the unique, the wonderful as a way of avoiding their relational insecurity right. I long for a deep connection but I'm terrified that if I let you know me that I'm going to regret it. I'm going to end up wounded, hurt, rejected or, or whatever it might be and so I never let that happen. I never let the vulnerability show, I never let the, um, the defenses down so I never get to form those relationships that would be actually beneficial and healing.
0: Mm. And it feels like the sad part of it is that everything you've just described is happening at such a deep unconscious mm. level that there's no self-awareness about it. Yeah, yeah. It.
2: And so the, the person is not just defending themselves against other people knowing how insecure they're, they're feeling. They're defending themselves against themselves knowing mm. about how deeply insecure they feel.
0: And that's kind of a unique thing about narcissism, isn't it? It hides the sufferer, if I can use that word, from the cause of their suffering. Yeah. And causes them to employ tactics that actually only serve to perpetuate their isolation and loneliness yeah. and shame, even. Yes. As you can probably tell, I could wax lyrical with Nettie about the inner workings of narcissism until the cows come home. But it seems only fair to let a bona fide narcissist speak for themselves. Now, one thing to know about narcissists is that they don't think they're narcissists. They're too busy thinking they're so darn awesome. However, a very small percentage of them have had the courage to take a step back, look at their behavior, wonder why it's different to others, and explore what's going on. And one of those rare individuals is a man by the name of Lee Hammock. Have I changed his name for the sake of this podcast? (laughs) Are you kidding me? This guy's a narcissist. In fact, he's made himself famous on the internet for being a self-aware narcissist, and has got nearly 250,000 followers on Instagram alone. So when I got on the line with Lee, I was expecting to talk to a guy who was totally full of himself and feeding his need for adoration with his social media following. But as we got chatting, I discovered there was actually a lot more to him than that. And as it happens, just a week before we talked, he'd taken his first ever trip to my corner of the world.
3: Just being in Australia was just overall just a good experience. Dang, I'm 10,000 miles from home. This is crazy.
0: And of course, I did what any self-respecting New Zealander does when they hear someone's been to Australia. Bit of a shame to get 90% of the way to paradise, though, you know, and not quite make that extra oh.
3: <laughs> that extra leap. You're New Zealand, right? Yeah, yeah. There's a people in my conversation, like, I'm going to Australia, like, coming to New Zealand is not that <laughs> far away. But this episode is not about little brother syndrome. It is, of course,
0: about narcissism. And as a self confessed narcissist, I wanted to know from Lee when he noticed he was different.
3: I noticed I was different when I was very, very young. I don't have a lot of memories before I was like seven or eight years old, but when I my memories do kick in i always remember feeling out of place among my peers Just is one of my earliest memories is of one of my classmates had fallen off the monkey bars and i think he ended up shattering his wrist and i remember just being super angry at him screaming and yelling at him as opposed to feeling compassion from oh man your wrist is hurting but i remember just thinking about myself in the instance like now recess is going to end because we don't have one teacher we have to go inside because you didn't you know you weren't careful enough so I'm angry, you know, just the the whole lack of empathy kicking in from the beginning.
0: Then as Lee's childhood progressed, he started copying certain people in quite an intense way.
3: Anytime I would be around somebody that I admired or I was jealous of, I would, you know, start taking on that personality characteristics that I, I liked, even down to the handwriting, how they wrote specific letters like G's and A's. I'm like, damn. I really like how you wrote that G right there. So I would copy that. I would just integrate that into my own handwriting. Just I would just be in the whole class period like G G G. I have a whole paper with my name in it, in the letter G, just written the how they used to write. It, it was just wild when I, when I think about it as an adult. I was like I was weird, you know. Looking back at it, you know, I'm 37 years old now. Looking back at it, I had a very very different mindset than other people around me because nobody else was doing that. You know, you act like other people, but you don't take it on as your own personality. Why do you think you were copying other people rather than doing your own thing? Because I just felt like just even growing up, I felt like I wasn't enough. I just felt like I stood out. I didn't fit in. Just, I just always just felt like I was just a different person. I, I, the way I normally describe it is I feel like an alien amongst people. I felt like, oh, I need to fit in better. I need to disguise myself better. So I started acting like people who were cool, who, who I thought fit in, who I thought people gravitated to. I was kind of scared to be myself but now i realized that you know i was trying to avoid being ostracized and rejected by people so i became people who i thought couldn't be rejected so i just it was crazy trying to avoid shame even when i was little so why do you think what caused you do you think to have such a low view of yourself that's the part right there i don't actually know there was some type of childhood trauma there was some neglect of course on the end of my uh, on my father's side of things you know but i always just felt like you know, just because my dad wasn't around, he was around. I just he was just wasn't active. You know, he just wasn't an active parent. So I just felt like even in those instances, like there was some childhood neglect going on there because I could never, ever, like no matter how hard I try, I could never get the validation from him. Like he would just never be proud of you. You always feel like nothing you do is ever going to be enough, and it bothers you. It bothers. Me. <laughs> that bothered me. It bothered me until I was you know thirty. Three thirty-four years old when I was in therapy, working through that type of stuff. But I don't like I said I don't have a lot of memories before eight, and there's a reason for that. Like something happened to me where my mind kind of shut off to protect me from that, from whatever happened. You mm. know, the narcissistic part of me was developed to protect my because I thought I was too weak as a child. So the narcissistic part of me was developed to protect and guard that inner child type stuff. I've actually done some inner child work in therapy where it's kind of it gets kind of very, very scary and intense and actually having a physical reaction. You know, with my eyes closed. I was getting I was sweating. I was getting like goosebumps. And my therapist is like, you OK? It's like I'm getting angry. I can feel myself getting angrier and angrier just looking at myself when I was younger. It was, It was kind of it was. A wild experience you know we'll be doing more of that here soon in my next therapy session so right
0: yeah. oh you're in the middle of it then yeah so yeah, yeah that right now. sounds
3: to me that
0: some trauma is probably involved
3: yeah mm-hmm. it's scary but it's interesting at the same time because i get to delve deeper but it's the fear of delving deeper too because like you don't know what's you know it's kind of like the ocean the surface looks the surface of the ocean looks calm but like you dip your head below the surface and there's so much going on you know
0: what Lee is saying about his relationship with his father and discovering some childhood trauma definitely seems to align with what Nettie told me about where narcissism can come from.
2: The narcissistic character is, again, at its core, an aspect of an insecure attachment, um, an attachment wound.
0: Right. Say more about that. You
2: know, one of the core things that children need is a secure attachment hmm. to know that they can rely and depend on another human being to show up for them mm. and to hold them and to reflect them, to provide a space for them to be all the things that they are and for them to be able to get to know themselves and, and be able to tolerate who they are with all of the ugliness and all of the beautifulness all together. right? So a secure attachment allows us to be able to depend appropriately on
0: others. And so how can an insecure attachment contribute to someone developing narcissism?
2: So that insecure attachment is about not knowing and believing that I'm gonna be safely held. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm not gonna be safely held in mind, I'm not gonna be safely held in body and in spirit, and I might be abandoned, I might be rejected, and if I'm abandoned and rejected, that's the most frightening thing that's the, the single most significant threat for a human being and i might attribute that insecurity to that story or image i have about myself as inadequate as mm. unlovable as insignificant or whatever it might be then that's the shame that's the shame that you're talking about there that mm. deep feeling of I'm not okay. Mm.
0: So how does, say, a child who starts to believe that about themselves, how does that then possibly translate to them being narcissistic later in life?
2: Well, uh, we have to build up defences. We have to find ways of tolerating and coping and defending ourselves against that that fear and shame. Mm. And so that those narcissistic traits can become a really effective way of defending myself against that. Fear. So here's the puffer fish that goes, I'm just a little fish swimming around in the ocean now. I'm a big, spiky fish that is less vulnerable.
0: How does that work? How is it effective against that fear and shame?
2: It's, it's the creating an illusion of myself as untouchable, as invulnerable. Mm. So I'm, I'm, I'm... Above. Above. I'm on this pedestal. Mm. I'm, I'm so wonderful that I don't have to confront the insecurity that I feel.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So it's, it's a massive denial and a massive distortion.
0: As I kind of think of that, is it like the emperor's new clothes? Yes,
2: something? it's exactly like that, yeah.
3: At the root of narcissism is avoiding shame, you know, avoiding shame and not feeling like you're, just feeling like you're not enough. So I remember, I can specifically remember like part of my mind just like just digging deeper, just like shutting that part off, just like no, I will ever hurt me again. And I remember a specific moment, you know, it was just like, nope, nope, nobody will ever hurt me again. I just feel like I became I was born that day. And it was kind of wildness because I woke up on like my seventh or eighth birthday. And I remember just saying, nobody will ever hurt me again. I had no memories before that. I knew who my brother was, I knew who my mom was, I knew who everybody else around me was, I knew everybody's role in my life but I just didn't know who I was it's kind of like I was a blank slate because I won't be open I won't open up and be vulnerable to allow people to hurt me you know
0: hi it's Mick here I hope you're enjoying are you mental as you can imagine making this podcast is a pretty time-consuming pursuit and I often get asked how people can support the podcast so what you can do is go to gofundme.com and search the words are you mental that's gofundme.com and search are you mental Okay, on with the episode. So you heard Nettie say earlier that narcissism is a spectrum, from people who have no narcissistic traits, to people who have a healthy amount of narcissism, through to people who are so narcissistic that it interferes with their ability to live life well and have healthy relationships. So I asked Nettie to walk us through that spectrum, describing what life is like for people at different points along the way. So at the bottom end what if someone has zero narcissistic traits?
2: At that end, it's like a complete dearth of feeling special in any way, a real absence of my value and my worth, hmm. which makes it really difficult for me to maintain my boundaries and to look after myself and to to get my needs met, to even think that I'm valuable enough to want to get my needs met. You can see how that can become problematic. Absolutely. And of course you end up then in situations where you're much more likely to be exploited, much more likely to let people walk on you. You know, that whole doormat thing.
0: Would someone with no narcissistic traits be at risk of ending up, say, in a partnership or a marriage or whatever it is with someone who
2: Well yeah. So we talk about
0: all narcissism. That,
2: well yeah, yeah, when we talk about a person being a narcissistic extension. So I only exist to meet your needs. I Mm. only exist to gratify your need. I don't exist in my own right.
0: Mm. And what if we keep walking that walk and go to someone with a healthy level of narcissism?
2: A healthy level of narcissism. And I think a healthy level of narcissism quite possibly develops and changes over our lifetime. Interestingly, oh, okay, I'm going to throw that in yeah, sure. because I'm only just thinking about it as I'm saying. Well, that. a
0: three-year-old is very narcissistic, exactly,
2: right? and 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 so they should be, and mm. that's what we expect of them. Mm. But a 23-year-old, 33-year-old, 53-year-old, 63-year-old yes. that still acts, has tantrums, and yes. so on, like a three-year-old. We don't, we don't, we, we don't all like know so the
0: much. 50-year-old who's still acting like a 20-year-old, <laughs> don't <laughs> yeah. we? Or a three-year-old. <laughs> Or a three-year-old. Yeah, we love them. So, in other words, it decreases with age.
2: Well, ideally, as we mature, we get a more realistic sense of ourselves and our separateness to the other. When I when I'm two or three, right, the world exists to gratify me, right. And but as I develop, I have to face the reality that I'm not the center of the universe, that Mm. I'm actually one of however many billion people there are on this planet. And I have to kind of come to terms with my insignificance, my unspecialness, right? Mm. And that can be quite challenging, that idea that I'm just one of eight billion people. And it's quite a loss and quite a grief that maybe I'm not as special as I thought I was. Mm. And how do I reconcile that? How do I come to terms with the sun doesn't actually rise because I woke up? Mm. The world keeps on turning no matter what happens to me. Am I? How do I realize still my significance but also my insignificance or my averageness or my normalness? Mm. And how do I develop empathy and and compassion, which means that I allow other people to have a place in the world as well. I allow them to have their own needs and that sometimes their needs take priority over my needs. When it becomes I've got to be the most special, then other people's specialness becomes a threat.
0: Yes. And that's narcissism, right? Yes. When someone high in narcissistic traits... It is a competition, right?
2: Yeah, it is a competition. And and our self-esteem becomes all wrapped up in being the
0: best. And as you said, if other people are doing well, that's a threat. Yeah. Which means we don't want them to and we want to push them out of our way or do better than them or belittle what they're doing, which is not going to do wonders for our relationship with them and our connection with them and how loved they feel by us. Yes. Yeah. So it's very real that being high in narcissistic traits can isolate you from the humans around you.
2: Yes, absolutely.
0: So if we return to the spectrum, we've kind of talked about someone who has a no narcissistic traits, someone who's got healthy narcissistic traits. Mm. What can we expect from someone who has a high level of narcissistic traits?
2: Well, at at that higher end of that kind of narcissistic spectrum, you see somebody who's lacking in empathy, who has this sense of entitlement, which means that they're prepared to kind of railroad or kind of trample on anybody that gets in their way. There's an arrogance that says I'm Mm. more important than anybody else. There's a sort of that egocentricity that we all love in our two year old, but not in our 30 year old. Mm. And there's that constant need to be validated and to be acknowledged and Admired. admired, which can get really tiresome for the people around them. There's a person who just is constantly talking about how they did this and how they did that and how they achieved here and how they did it better or whatever it might be. Um, You also see this kind of increasing need to be in control because being out of control of course is vulnerable. Mm. So um, there's a real pretentiousness that comes with that but also there can be a real superficiality so it can be kind of brittle in a way. I think about this kind of glittering image that looks quite beautiful but doesn't have the depth and substance that makes it feel solid
0: tell me the journey you went on to working out that you were a narcissist
3: when i actually started being in intimate relationships like with women they were always in the same way like literally like clockwork i would just become disinterested in this person just for seemingly no reason i'm like why you know i'd be madly in love with this person and then one day i'd be looking at them and like why the hell am i with you This is weird. It kept happening over and over and over again to the point where I got married and I was looking at my wife the same way. And I started treating her like that. And then one day, like me and her got to a huge argument because I was like yelling at my little son and she just called me a narcissist. She was like, it's so damn hard to live with a narcissist. I like narcissist. You know, you are a narcissist. Like if anything, you were conceited and cocky. I was talking trash. And then she ended up leaving and I was like, why in the hell does she call me that? Out of all the insults in the world, why would she call me a narcissist? So I got on Google and I typed in the word narcissist and Google suggested narcissistic personality disorder. Did you mean narcissistic personality disorder? I was like, what the hell is that? And like, I didn't mean that, but like, you know, enter. And then the, the signs and the traits and the symptoms came up and I was like, wow, 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 like, wow, this is, this is me. And I was just like, wow. This explains so much why I've been feeling so different for a long time. It's kind of a cathartic release. I was like, wow, Mm. this is me. I remember texting my wife. I was like, damn, you know what? I looked it up. I am a narcissist. (laughs) I'm not even joking with you. It's like, I think I have a personality disorder. And like, you know what? I also looked up. There's no cure for it. So (laughs) the only thing I can do is go to (laughs) therapy. I have this for life. Mm The only thing I can do is go to therapy. When you looked up that
0: stuff on Google when the, the, the traits of a narcissist came up, what what are say a couple of things that really jumped out at you at like, oh that's me? The
3: the lack of empathy, definitely. The mm-hmm. delusions of grandeur that jumped off the the screen at me. Tell you me know, about that. What's
0: a how do you experience delusions of grandeur? Because
3: I always thought I would deserve to be better off than what I was. You know what I mean? I was like, why am I not better in this why am I not a higher position in this job? I need I need to own this company with no education. No background, no experience. I, like, I, need to, I should be in charge of everybody. I just always want more. Like I should be in the NFL. I should be in the NBA. What am I doing here? You know, I need to be a famous actor. Why am I not acting beside The Rock? I will be watching a movie and be like, I can do this role better than them. No acting experience, no nothing. I was special just because I was me. No qualifications, no nothing. I'm just special because I'm me. You know, this And in, is and right in some
0: now. way superior to others.
3: Yeah. Yep. It sucks to read that type of stuff because it's not good, <laughs> but it's also at least I know have an idea of who I am and what, what I have going on. So that helped me out a lot right there.
0: As Lee has alluded to, people at the top end of the narcissism spectrum can be diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder. I asked Nettie when narcissism becomes NPD.
2: When it tips over into a kind of realm that has such a profound impact on the person's life that their functioning is impaired that's when it becomes a disorder. Mm. So when narcissistic traits pervade all a person's relationships, Mm. and like an addiction, it becomes the kind of defining feature of that person's existence. Mm. And that's when you get relationships that are exploitative, you get those severe deficits in empathy.
0: So going back to Lee, he has officially been diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder. And even though he's done a lot of work on himself since, he still can't experience empathy the way most of
3: us can. So when I'm talking to people, which I do every single day, it gets to that point where they'll be boohoo crying, you know, about their experience. And I'm just like, okay, I, I understand why you're crying. I just don't cry with you. You know, I get it. I understand the pain you must have experienced when you, your husband left you for your, your best friend. I understand the pain you feel. I understand why you're crying. I just don't feel like I'm not going to cry with you. You don't feel it. I don't feel it, no, because I I didn't do anything to him. So it's cognitive empathy. It's not, it's it's not effective empathy.
0: Okay. So hopefully by now you have a good idea of what narcissism is, what can cause it to develop and how narcissistic people behave. But one fact that it would be wrong to leave out is that many narcissists hurt people and often in deep and destructive ways. And the people who pay the price for their endless self-absorption are the people closest to them. I was blown away by the sheer size and number of the Facebook groups devoted to the victims of narcissistic abuse. So I went searching for someone who'd had the unfortunate experience of living with a narcissist. But in the end, it was a pretty quick search. I put a post on Facebook, and within a couple days, two people I know had replied. One of them, and I'm not using a real name, was Sarah.
1: 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you. No problem. So Sarah was a friend of mine back in our teenage years, and I noticed that the previous Facebook message we'd swapped was from 2007. In the meantime, Sarah had had the misfortune of being married to a narcissist for 13 years. And at this point, I should probably say that I'm not making a call on whether Sarah's ex-husband has narcissistic personality disorder and even how high up the spectrum he is. I'll let you decide that for yourself. So I got Sarah to wind the clock all the way back to 2004 when she met the man who would become her husband.
1: I was at a nightclub in town, got dancing and talking and then gave him my number and he called me the next day and we went out and then he was going back overseas, so... We kept in touch via emails back in those days, still, and then started a relationship really through um, emails.
0: So this guy she met, we're going to call him Reuben, was a Kiwi, which by the way is a New Zealander, and he was living in Australia. And the more they got chatting, the more things seemed to line up.
1: He was a pilot, and my grandfather was a pilot, and I always felt a strong connection to him, my grandfather, even though I never met him. Yeah, you know, I thought that was great, and I also found out that he had a dog, and I, you know, I love dogs. <laughs>
0: Reuben started showing Sarah the kind of attention she hadn't experienced before.
1: I mean, I've never had a long-term relationship before. To be honest, I hadn't really had a relationship before that. So I didn't really know the territory I was getting into. But it must have been about a week after I met him, he had sent a dozen red roses to my school. And I was like, wow, this is intense. OK, maybe he's got stronger feelings for me than I thought.
0: Sarah got caught up in the whirlwind that is the first few weeks of a brand new relationship. But three months in, he had a little news for her.
1: And he told me that he was actually in a relationship with somebody else at that time. Oh. so Three um, months in. Three months in, yeah. And I thought, okay, well, he's been open and honest with me. He told me that she wasn't someone who he expected to marry, but he could see more of that in the qualities that I had. So even during shocking news, he was trying to, um, I guess, butter me up and make me still feel like I was his priority and not the other person. And she also was a a New Zealander, and she was living over there in Australia. Was
0: she over there for him? Yeah. Oh.
1: But I wanted it to be, yeah, I wanted it to be sorted. I didn't want to be the other woman, even though I actually was.
0: And he kept, he was with both of you. Yeah. For a good two, three months. Yeah. How did that feel for you?
1: It did feel awkward. Um, some of my friends had met him that first night, and one of the girls had said to me before I moved over that I was making the biggest mistake of my life.
0: Hmm. Was she right?
1: She was right. Hmm. My family had met him, and they said, look, you know, it's up to you, totally up to you. If, if you think that he's right for you, then we'll support you 100%.
0: Was there a but behind that, do you think? But
1: (laughs) I still remember on my wedding day, as my dad was walking me down the aisle, he turned to me and said, it's not not too late to back out.
0: Wow. Despite a couple of well-intentioned warnings, Sarah was in love and married Ruben in 2005. But it didn't take long for his narcissism to rear its head. And by the time they'd been married for a couple of years, Sarah was dealing with Ruben's destructive behavior on a daily basis.
1: It was all about him and how great he was. And I felt like he had no empathy. Like when I had any concerns, he just looked at, he said I was emotional and it was all in my head. And that I wasn't experienced in relationships, therefore I, I didn't know, you know what a real relationship really was. I, I wasn't thought about. And I think more of his behaviours or narcissistic behaviours, I think came about after children because he wasn't the centre of attention anymore. I didn't realise how miserable I had become. Yeah, yeah it, it's it's hard. You, you expect that your best friend and your confidant is your partner, the person that you're married to. You expect them to show you the most grace and love and then you realise that that hasn't happened and it hasn't happened for some time, that instead you were the one getting blamed for everything. And whenever you came up with any concerns it was rubbish. I didn't know what I was talking about. And I was just dismissed. And it was never a happy wife, a happy life. It was always happy husband, happy life. Mm. And um, you get to a part where, a point Sorry, where you know exactly what he's going to say and what he thinks, so you don't say anything. Mm. You just shut up and you, do, you just get on with it. He was
0: toxic. I was curious to know whether Sarah felt like Ruben loved her.
1: He doesn't know what true love is. And I think that he really doesn't understand the relationship as a two-way giving. He would always push me to do things that was not really what I wanted to do.
3: Yeah.
1: For me, true love is the love that I've got from my friends and my family, of them sticking by and supporting and you know, making sure that I'm okay. That didn't really happen in our relationship. I think a lot of the things that he relates to what he believes is love is through sex.
0: Hmm.
1: And then because I was so submissive, I, I didn't see a lot of his narcissistic traits until I stopped listening to him and I broke up with him. That's when the hatred and a lot of crazy things
0: happened. Speaking of crazy things... Let's go back to Lee talking about how his narcissism reared its head in his marriage and what he put his wife through.
3: I would always, like you know, demean my wife and just devalue her or her experiences. Just not just my wife, in my previous relationship partners as well. Everybody would get the same type of behavior. Sooner or later, something would set me off to make me start down this path of devaluing. Something would set me off to make me start down this path of treating people badly. You know, I'm not a physically violent person because I always used to. This used to be a badge of honor of mine. I was like, I don't have to hit you to hurt you. You know, I can, but that doesn't do me any good. I can use my words to hurt you. So I was always used, like, just saying the meanest, the the, the most heinous stuff that you can say to people, like weaponizing people's trauma against them. Oh, your mom died. Did she kill herself because of you? You know, stuff like that. Wow. Oh, your your dad your dad abandoned you. I would have left you too. Like, look at you, wow. how you turned out. You know, just stuff like that. I would say it's mean stuff. You know. What's it like now looking back at knowing... You said stuff
0: that cruel.
3: Oh yeah. I so now I look back at it like, man, it was mean. Yeah, you know, that was super mean. And I can't I can't take it back. The only thing I do now is not say that type of stuff now and and just try to be better. You, know, you can't take that back. So I can't just say, no, that was that wasn't me. No, it was me. It was. And I cannot apologize enough for saying that horrible evil stuff to you. I cannot apologize enough. The only thing I can do is promise that I won't say that type of stuff again and just promise to be better. Let's go back to Sarah, talking about what was important to her husband.
1: Stuff's important to him. The flash cars, a flash house, the latest and greatest. And, you know, his parents had a bit of that going on. So I think it, in a way, showed his parents that he was doing well, that he was achieving in life because he had all this stuff. I didn't care about stuff.
0: What do you think was behind his love of stuff?
1: I don't think he understood what true self-worth or true accomplishment actually was. You know, it was all about titles, where he was in his work, what he had, and he liked to kind of show off his prowess to everyone else so that everyone else could see how great he was.
0: Mm, wow. So <laughs> what was the center of his world? Himself. What did he think of himself?
1: Maybe he doesn't know his true self. He, he, he's only what you see on the outside, yeah. I think he looks at bettering himself as showing people what he's got yeah, or where he is in life.
0: What was his relationship with admiration like?
1: Even though he was born in New Zealand, he joined the Australian Defence Force and became a helicopter pilot there. He loved that his status, his work status, that he was a pilot, that he he liked that the people below him had to salute him. He wanted people to admire him and what he does. It became like an addiction that he needed to have some positive stuff that is said about him or gratitude to him or praise to him to puff up his feathers, you know. I think it was more of an, an addiction
0: than anything else. Let's go back now to my chat with our psychologist, Nettie. So I appreciate the fact that you're taking quite a empathetic, compassionate approach to narcissists essentially, Mm. that that deep down it's this sad lack of self-love in a way. It's a
2: human struggling. Yeah.
0: Mm. But up the other side of that coin is just to repeat some of the things you've mentioned about the qualities of a narcissist. We're talking about arrogance, lack of empathy, they think they're special, they'll take advantage of others to get Mm. what they want, they're self-important, they're entitled, they want to be constantly admired. (laughs) (laughs) These are not, I mean... They're not very nice qualities.
2: But the funny thing is, you know, when a when when a person is getting all those needs met, it's a little bit like the addict who's had their hit. They're all good, and they can be they can be just absolutely delightful to be around. But at whose expense? Exactly, because it does come at quite a high price sometimes. So
0: especially if you're, it's one thing to be their colleague, but it's another thing to be their husband or wife or child.
2: Yeah, and it depends on the nature of the relationship, what kind of impact it might end up
0: having. So what could someone expect? Let's say someone is the partner of a narcissist. Mm. What's that experience likely to be like?
2: Well, I mean, when everything's going well, it's wonderful, right? And this is part of what can be captivating, because when when everything's going well and that, that person is not feeling threatened and they're not feeling insecure, then often, a person with a lot of narcissistic traits are a delight to be around because mm. they are engaging and they are
0: extroverted, very... funny.
2: Yeah, but being in a relationship with somebody who who displays those kinds of traits can feel like not really existing for your own self. You know, not really being listened to, not really being seen and heard and not being valid yourself it's an interesting kind of projection that happens and kind of what that means is that part of two separate and distinct individuals connecting in a relationship is about that mirroring that you get from Mm. being in a relationship with another part of falling in love is kind of getting a glimpse of yourself from the point of view of the other person
0: absolutely
2: but then when you live with a person who doesn't reflect you we don't get a sense of ourselves reflected in the other Mm. which is quite distressing Mm. it's quite dehumanizing
0: and that i i see that as being because they actually don't care about you
2: no they don't they only care about you in as much as you meet their needs Mm.
0: or make them look good
2: or which which is meeting their needs (laughs) right yeah. yeah yeah so Otherwise, they don't think about you. Mm. You'll be the center of their universe while you're meeting their needs. Mm. But when they don't need that anymore, then you don't exist for them. It's horrible. Yeah, it is horrible. The only
1: times I got anything for like a Valentine's Day or anniversary, if he remembered, was actually when I realized something was going on and I felt like he was having an affair. And then I got flowers.
0: And was he having an affair?
1: Yes. Yes, I found out that she got flowers, even more expensive flowers than what I got. (laughs) Yes, he had a a few affairs, and I'd find him hiding out in the garage or around the side of the house. And I'm like, "Oh, who are you talking to? Why are you being so? You know, you know, are you having a go at me? Do you not trust me? You know, he'd turn it around to me to make me think that I'm going crazy. Um, He couldn't get it up. He had started taking Viagra, and as a person in a relationship, when you know that he is very much a physical person and all of a sudden he's not reacting to you anymore, that was weird for me. And he was constantly on his phone when I'd roll over, I'd see the light of his phone on and he's yeah. messaging. So early hours of a mor- um, one morning, I said to him, look, what the hell is going on? And he told me, he said, look, I actually met someone while I was overseas. I actually met a couple of people. The first one I found out later was a stripper. And the other other girl was someone who he felt sorry for, like he was trying to be the knight in shining armour. And I was just lying there in absolute shock, Mm -hmm. going, what the hell? Anyway, after he had dealt all his stuff that he, some of the stuff anyway, he obviously felt better, so he fell asleep. I obviously couldn't fall asleep after that. (laughs) I went outside and I was like, who the hell am I gonna talk to? What am I gonna do? I figured New Zealand's two hours ahead, so I rang his mum. And I've always had quite a close connection with his mum. And she said, kick him out. So I, I went into the room and I said, look, I can't have you here. Get your stuff and be gone. I said to the kids, look, your dad's kind of in timeout at the moment. He's gone to stay with somebody else because he's, he's broken mummy's heart. Um, my eldest son said to me, oh, are you guys separating? And I said, I don't know yet, darling. He goes, oh, he's always yelling at you anyway, mum. And my heart just broke thinking, mm. oh my goodness. I didn't, you know, I try and stop the kids from hearing the stuff, but he knew.
0: How was he able to hurt you that much?
1: Good question. <laughs> I think it is all linked to that lack of empathy. He just cannot see how his actions can affect other people. I think he, in his eyes, he deserved better and I wasn't giving him everything that he expects or wants in his life. He needs someone to be there for him and him alone and him be the focus of, of everything.
0: When he told you that he'd had an affair, multiple affairs, yeah. And hurt you that much? What was his, yeah, what was his response?
1: He was like, oh, I was thinking about having her as our next au pair.
0: The woman he'd had an affair with?
1: Yeah, I'm not that kind of person. I'm, you're not having two wives. He didn't have any real remorse. I don't even remember if he even apologised for it. And it just clicked in my head. I was like going, what the hell am I doing? He is so gone. <laughs> And he was trying to say all this stuff and try and using all his manipulation skills to, to draw me back to him. And it wasn't working anymore. Mm. I'd just let him talk and talk and talk and talk. And I just stopped responding. Mm. And he, he hated that. It's a, the biggest thing if you're ever having to deal with a narcissist is to not respond. Because they are trying to get a response out of you.
0: One thing I saw mentioned online a lot is narcissistic rage. So I asked Nettie what that was all about.
2: When there's what we call a narcissistic injury. Is that
0: just a flash way of saying they don't get what they want?
2: Yes, it is. They don't get what they want and what it represents to them is they're being told they're not as important as they need to be. be. They Mm. need to believe that they are. So that's the narcissistic injury and being told that they're not that special. Hmm. (laughs) <laughs> and that can, that can trigger that rage that yeah. you're talking about, that very fiery, defensive rage. Yeah. So when there's feedback or criticism, you know, you'll see that very strong reaction sometimes. <laughs> even if it's not, even if it's the most kind and, and gentle feedback, the reaction can be quite
0: extreme. Did he have an anger problem?
2: Yes.
1: Yeah um it was a lot of yelling there was only like slapping and stuff near the end when I was getting frustrated and I lashed out at him first and he slapped me and then threw me across the room and I just knew I wasn't getting anywhere
0: (laughs) what would trigger that for him
1: that I wasn't being silent that I wouldn't shut up when Mm. things are going his way he's happy and when things don't watch out there were times when after we were separated that I actually got quite fearful because I could see the rage inside of him. And things got the the better of me. You know, he would always go on about all the missiles or the bombs or the guns and things that he had on board his helicopter. And, you know, I was just thinking, man, is he going to break? Is he going to do something that he's not supposed to? Is he going to lash out to me with missiles and all? (laughs) I didn't know.
0: Do you think narcissism is on the rise?
2: Hmm. I think the feeling is that it is. I mean, it's hard to know. I mean, we hear in the media about an epidemic of narcissism, but we do live in a society and a culture that certainly rewards and reinforces the kinds of behaviors that a narcissistic character employs mm. the pursuit of specialness you know we have, we have mm. reality tv you just present a stage for people to play out all of their fantasies of being special and wonderful so that again that gets reinforced and it gets validated it gets prized almost as a valid way of being in the world and you've got social media that again presents A very superficial but very powerful image. And we can do that from our couches and our bedrooms. We can seek validation so easily and often get validated so readily and so it probably at one time would have been quite hard to get the kind of Mm. reward from that kind of behavior that is actually quite easy to get now
0: so we can kind of feed the beast
2: we can feed the beast and and our society feeds the beast as well because we prize appearances and we prize success and we prize wealth and Mm. ways that we never have done before and media all feeds into that too
0: and if we have more ways than ever to feed the beast, the beast gets bigger. bigger.
2: Mm.
3: Stupid beast.
0: Do you think you're a pretty rare breed being a narcissist who owns being a narcissist?
3: I would say I'm rare because, you know, I can sit in the shame better than a lot of other narcissistic people. And that's what's required to own up to the fact you're a narcissist to be oh, able to sit oh. in shame. You, you got to be able to sit in it and deal with it because if you, if you can't, then you can't get better. Shame is a very powerful, it is a powerful, powerful thing in the life of a narcissist. I call it the shame monster. It is a monster. It's like the monster under your bed. And have you still got a monster under your bed? Oh, yeah. It's, it's under there. Yeah. In the movies, you hear something under the bed scratching against the floor like, eh. you, you wouldn't look under the bed. You, you cover the, you cover your face up with the blanket. I, I look under the bed now. You know, it's still scary, you know. I don't want to deal with it, but if I don't deal with it, I'll start doing stuff. that bring more. They end up bringing more shame to you. Sometimes you got to just kind of just deal with it. Sit in it. Be embarrassed. Be ashamed of yourself. Sometimes, like if you if you cannot do that, you cannot get better.
2: Mm.
3: It's interesting you say that you got
0: to sit in the shame. Because I know that a lot of popular voices at the moment, the likes of Brene Brown, would probably say that shame's not ever helpful. You know, that, that guilt is helpful because it says I did something wrong, but shame is unhelpful because I am something wrong.
3: Yeah, that's how I used to feel. You know, you're wrong or you're bad. You're a horrible person. That's what the shame monster is saying. You're horrible. You're a bad person. You're this. You'll never be enough. It's talking to you. You know, it really is talking. It's like a voice. It's It's a monster. You know, you can hear it. But now I'm just like, I acknowledge that it exists and that it, it doesn't mean that it's right. You know, uh, the shame monster exists, but the stuff that it's just because it's saying this stuff to you doesn't make it right. Because you say I'm not good enough doesn't mean I'm not good enough. Right. Okay.
0: So you're acknowledging its existence yeah. and you're acknowledging what it's saying, but you mm-hmm. don't have
3: to believe it. You don't have to believe it. Yeah, exactly. Mm.
0: I'm curious to know, how's your marriage now?
3: Uh, It's a lot better than what it used to be my wife would say that she would agree with that now that the last three years have been better than the first seven, eight years exponentially better because she, we can communicate on a very different level right now, you know, than what we used to could. Like she can speak her piece and say what's on her mind and not feel scared to say it. So So what
0: kind of tools and strategies do the two of you employ now to manage your narcissism in your
3: marriage? So I feel like she sees her own personal therapist, you know, I see my therapist and I just feel like we come to, we come together in the middle and we just, we, we talk, you know, we still argue sometimes. Yeah. But it doesn't get to the point where we just like, I'm leaving. It doesn't get to that point anymore. You know, there's a lot more understanding because we, you know, if we're going to, if it's going to be some conflict, we handle it before it gets to the point where it's going to blow up. You know, it helps the relationship dynamic, even with my kids, because I've been working on myself and coming from a place of, you know, more caring and understanding their emotions, even though I don't get deep into their emotions, I understand them and I can just talk to them. It's like, yeah, I get why you're crying. You can cry. You're a human being. Let it out. I'll make a joke. Like, I don't cry. I really don't cry. I've cried two or three times in the last 17 years. You know, I can count. Wow. But y'all can cry, (laughs) you know, Mm. cry, cry it out. Let it out. So obviously as a
0: narcissist, you can't experience empathy. You can't feel other people's feelings, but can you love and care for other people?
3: yeah so I feel, I can feel other people's feelings to a certain extent until it gets uncomfortable for me but I can like for my kids I just feel like it's different you know for my kids and people who are closer to me I've, I just feel like it's a lot different because I'm I'm connected to them because I actually want to, to see them do better than me you know so I work extra hard even in my therapy sessions to just understand the kids that are going to be kids even sometimes when they cry I sometimes honestly when they cry it gets on my nerves I used to get angry when they cry I'm like oh my here we go again Cause I didn't want to deal with their emotions, but now I, I sit in it. I'll talk to them I was like, look, you can cry, man. Cause they used to be ashamed of crying for him. Now I'm just like, look, you can cry. Mm. You're a human being. Don't hold it back. Cause if you hold it back, you turn out like me. You don't want to be like me. And I'll make a joke, <laughs> you know? I actually don't want them following in my footsteps. I want them to make their own paths. Like, you see my footsteps, go around them, don't go through them. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> you can see my little crocs, you know, the croc footprints right there. Just <laughs> go around them, don't <laughs> not, go, not try to fit into them, you know. Did he think he deserved special treatment?
1: I think he thrived from it. And when he wasn't getting it, then he went somewhere else for it. And I mean, already that's the person that he, um, that we broke up over. <laughs> has also now left. She's gone back to America, so now he's on to the next one. And, you know, doing lots of fun things, cool things, expensive things to try and butter up, to get that same praise and acceptance from, to make him feel wanted and needed and give him some power, I guess. Hmm. I don't think he'll ever change.
0: So what if I, let's just be very hypothetical for a second, what if I, in hearing all this, think you know what I am often motivated by wanting to look good be good be special succeed at stuff win the race Mm. what if I've noticed that Mm. how do I turn that around how do I make that less of a focus well
2: again I suppose the question is how problematic might that pursuit be for you because you know, wanting to achieve and wanting to be successful, that's not a problem in itself, mm. only when it takes over everything else. And But I guess part of what you're saying there is that what you're identifying there is an awareness of something that's driving you. Mm. And when we're more aware of some of the things that motivate us, then we can make more conscious choices about how we're going to act, mm. how we're going to temper it, how we're going to regulate it. So if I can recognize that I'm driven by competition and then that competes perhaps with some other values that I hold, whether it be around valuing other human beings and not treating them like doormats, then I can temper it and I can go, okay, I've got these mixed feelings. How am I gonna grow with that? How am I gonna become more aligned with my values without denying the other stuff that's important to me too, which might well be achievement? You know, achievement and success are really satisfying and really rewarding experiences. But when they become the only thing that's important to us, then that's when it becomes a problem.
0: So changing text slightly, despite what we kind of know about what's going on internally with, with narcissistic people, the reality is they're out there and sometimes doing damage mm. and being Prickly, being the puffer fish. Mm. What should we do with the narcissistic people in our lives? Mm. Stay away, because that—that's not a bad option, right?
2: Um, potentially. However, it's not always. It isn't always an option.
0: What if it is? Do we avoid them? Do we stay engaged? Do we uh, try and change them? Do we just try and manage it best we can? I, I
2: think to start with, it's about establishing some realistic expectations Mm. if we're expecting the narcissist in our life to be the one that we get empathy and care and attention from we're going to keep on being disappointed very often in that dynamic we get sucked into almost like a tennis match you know things getting lobbed backwards and forwards and we often end up doing that because on some level it meets a kind of corresponding need in ourselves Mm. or a a corresponding lack or vulnerability or something, you know.
0: Well, I know that who I interviewed in this room last week is a self-confessed people pleaser. Yeah. And she was married to a narcissist. Yeah. So it it was kind of in this weird kind of symbiotic, like he needed the admiration and she needed to please him.
2: Yes, yeah and we set ourselves these challenges if i could just achieve this then i'll be able to believe that i'm actually okay and it's never going to be enough right the, if you're looking for validation from other people it's never going to be enough and so it becomes this perpetual rally that just goes on and on and on and what if you just don't hit the ball back what if you decide to step out of that dynamic and rather than being automatically drawn into it think about how do i how how do i want to live what are my priorities what are my needs and and what's a more realistic way of getting those needs met am i pouring all of my energy into this black hole that is never actually going to give me back what I'm needing and what I'm wanting. It doesn't mean that you necessarily end the relationship with the person, but maybe you decide how you're going. But it could, that could be. It could, yep, it could. um, But it might be about changing the way you engage in that relationship.
0: Like if someone's listening to this, what are two or three things that they could look out for if they're suspicious that they're, say, married to a narcissist?
3: So the first thing I would say that you can look out for is how you feel. You know, do you feel like you can be yours? Do you feel like you're more yourself in other groups of people or around your partner? Even my wife in this situation, I had a video that went viral recently about how she used to act differently around other people. She used to be so happy and joyful out in public, just like smiling, happy cracking jokes. We get home, it was just like zip it up and I get this boring, lazy version of you. And through therapy, I would talk to my therapist about that. She's like, yeah, it's because of you. My, my therapist, she'd be keeping it real. That's your fault. <laughs> you know what I, mean? I was like, oh. How was it your fault? What were you doing? Because I was making her feel like she couldn't speak her mind. She couldn't be happy because I would always stifle her, her mood. You know what I
0: mean? So she was scared of you, essentially.
3: Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Walking on eggshells would be the, the operative term that a lot of people use. You feel like mm-hmm. you're walking on eggshells. Like you cannot be yourself around your partner. Typically, I, I tell people to follow your intuition. And also, how did you get here? Were you vulnerable when you first met this person? Did it move super fast to get here? Did you actually know this person before you got married, before y'all moved in together? Or y'all just was it a whirlwind romance? And y'all just went to Vegas and eloped and like, hey, we we're married. Mm. Did you actually know this person? I just mm. feel like there's there's some telltale signs that people can kind of look out for. Just, it typically is how you feel, honestly. You yeah. just feel different around this person. You cannot be if you feel like you cannot be yourself around this person, you might very well be in a toxic relationship. And like, are they treating other people better than they're treating you? like do you get the bad version of them are they treating you horribly but making everybody else feel like the top of the world did he gaslight you definitely i didn't
1: even know what gaslighting was until afterwards Mm. um he would just constantly just what are you talking about you're crazy this is look at you right now because i will you know you become physically frustrated whether it be you know, digging your nails into your legs, you know, self harming yourself pretty much, or, you know, wanting to jump out of a car because this person is driving you crazy because they're trying to trigger you. They're trying to make you second guess yourself and it's not nice.
0: Where do you think hope lies for narcissists?
3: I just feel like you have to have hope for yourself to to get better, to fight against the odds and whatnot. So I feel like the hope lies in the whoever the person is. Like, you have to want more. When I first got started, like I said, on this journey, there was a group of self-aware nurses. Like, a lot of people were diagnosed with it. It was only, like, 50 or 60 people in that group, maybe 100 people in it It was a very, very small group. Um, that same group now has, like, nine, ten thousand 10,000 people in it. Wow. But a lot of people in, who joined those groups— had lost hope. Like a lot of people, and that's why I kind of started my platform, a lot of people would join those groups and act like their life was over because they had a personality disorder. It was like I'm a narcissist, my life is over. I'm like, damn, that sucks to think like that, you know what I mean? Uh why do you got to feel that way? And some people people would join that group, they would create fake Facebook pages to join those groups cuz they thought their boss would find out. And my boss hates narcissists. They're going to fire me if they find out I have a personality disorder. Like, wow. I said, we got to live like that in, in darkness. It's kind of like you got to like a secret society. We got to live in darkness. And I didn't feel that way. So one of the tenets of my platform when I first got it started was to show narcissists themselves that if you put the work in, you can live a more fulfilling life. You absolutely can. You can be better. You have to you have to want to be better. You have to be able to sit in the shame. You have to be able to take accountability because when I do something wrong, but I hate apologizing. I, it, it actually pains me to apologize But after I apologize, I feel better because I'm like, I'm proud of myself. Like, damn, you actually did that. Cool. Pat yourself on the back. Keep moving. You know, people don't get to tell you what you can and can't do. Only you can tell yourself what you can and can't do. But you have to put the work in. You just can't like you can't do it on your own. I would say that. There's no way in hell I would be here right now, able to verbalize my thoughts and things like that, like I'm doing to you right now, if I wouldn't have sat in a therapist chair. There's no, there's no way. I've read, I probably read a hundred books before I sat in a therapist chair and I was still treating people horribly before that because I didn't know what was going on with me. You know, I wasn't accepting of who I was. That's why I was reading so much, trying to change who I was. Now I'm still reading those same type of books, but I'm also accepting of who I am so I can work on that. You know, I have the blueprint to work on who I am, to change my change my life for the better. Will I be cured? No, I don't. I don't want to. I don't, don't want to be cured. I'm good. You know, I'm accepting who I. Am. I'm I'm good, with who I am right now. And people are like you, are good being a narcissist. You you like that? I'm like yo. If I can't change it, if it doesn't go away, do you want me to beat myself up all the time? Like you know, gotta play the hand, the cards you dealt with. You know.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. What What makes you happy these days? Actually, the the thing, like I said, other than my 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 family, and just sometimes, just I like, consider to be happiness with them. Sometimes, like I think the thing that makes me happiest now, is actually changing people's lives for the for for the better. I actually love when people tell me, "I, you know, hey, you saved my life," you know, because I do meetups. Like even I was in, I, you know, Australia is ten thousand miles away from my house, and I was just like, "Hey, guys, like if y'all follow happen to follow me, I'll be at this restaurant bar tonight at four o'clock. If y'all want to come, say, hey. almost twenty people showed up." In Australia, I was like, whoa. There's like, oh my God, you saved my life. like I escaped and you know, I just I would not be alive right now if it wasn't for you. Like my person tried to take my life, tried to take my tried to end my life, and I was pregnant and I escaped and I got to hold a baby. I saw your videos, and this is the baby that, that was born from there. I got to hold a baby. I was like, Wow. It's incredible. I, I love that aspect of things right there. I, that 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 actually makes me feel happy. You know, I'm still chasing joy, but they may, I have moments of happiness with that right there. And people are just like, "Hey, can I hug you, please, please?" I'm like, yeah, yeah. Here, here's a hug. You know, <laughs> it's, it's cool. It's it's super cool. You know, I, I love that.
0: If someone's listening to this and they've been hearing the descriptions of a narcissist, and they've realized that in this example, they've realized that their partner fits that description, and that they're actually getting treated pretty badly by them. Mm. There's no room for them in that relationship.
2: Mm.
0: What would you want to say to them? Mm.
2: I think one of the features of those kinds of experiences is that we keep on hoping that we're going to be able to change the other person. We keep on hoping that we could love them into being nicer to us, that we could love them into being more what we need them to be. And if we could just be better, if we could just be prettier, if we could just be more pleasing that he or she will love us Mm. and we'll often feel responsible for when we're not getting the love and the attention that we're hoping for and feel to blame and it's not your fault that other person is responsible for their behavior and only they can change their behavior I think we keep on hoping that we're going to be able to if we hang in there long enough it'll change We can't change the other person, only they can change. Mm. And it can be a heartbreaking and demoralizing process to keep on hanging in there. I want to say something a little bit more hopeful because that sounds really dire. I want to say, you know, what's your true north? You know, when we spend our lives investing in somebody else's needs, we lose sight of our own guiding stars, our own. We lose ourselves and you don't have to lose yourself in this relationship. You don't have to sacrifice yourself in the service of another person. You can flourish and thrive independent of that relationship. Do you feel that you are being loved? Do you feel that you
1: have been appreciated? Do you feel that you've been you know, thought of and respected? Do you feel that you know who you are anymore? If you are not getting those things, then you need to wake up. And that's the thing you do. You get into like a slumber. And as I said, you get numb to it all. You need to be able to wake up from it and to realise what's actually happening or not happening. And if you're wanting to be in that relationship, why? What are you getting from that relationship? Is it beneficial or not? As I said before, I never wanted a broken marriage or anything like that, but it happens, and you work through it. You need to be true to yourself, and if you've lost yourself, then that's a huge sign that it's a relationship that's not good for you.
0: And what would you say to that same person to give them hope in an otherwise quite hopeless situation?
1: There's more to life. You don't need somebody to make you happy. You can make yourself happy, and there's so much in the world that you can... Do and you know people you can be with who appreciate you, and it doesn't have to come in a form of a, a marriage or a relationship or anything like that. Um, are you who you hoped that you would be at this stage in your life? What do you want for your future?
0: Well, what, what are the good things that can lie on the other side of that?
1: Well, you actually can get to happiness. <laughs> you can actually be loved. There's so much that I missed out on because I was trying to make it work with one person, and everything else just went away. So on the other side of breaking off from this one person who you believe is a narcissist, um, there is is a, a better life out there for you where you can be you and find you again and what you want for yourself and your future.
0: So if someone's listening to this and they can really relate to your description of what it's like to be a narcissist Maybe they really struggle to empathize with people. Maybe their focus is nearly always on themselves. Uh, possibly they constantly seek admiration and attention from others. What if they're listening to that and relating to that? What would you want to
3: say to them? Go get help. Like seriously, just go get help. It's it's, it's okay to not feel okay, but it's not okay to treat people badly because you don't feel Okay. It's not okay to take out your emotional frustration with yourself. The internal unhappiness is not okay to express that externally on people around you because you're not happy internally. Go get help. Sit in the therapist chair. Be vulnerable. Open, honest. You know, acknowledge that you might be a hurt person. It might acknowledge that you might have experienced some type of trauma in your childhood or your adult life, something like that. Just acknowledge that something might be going on. And like just feel like you can actually live a better life if you are willing to put the work in.
2: I would say it takes a lot of guts to be able to be that vulnerable and to take that kind of responsibility. Uh, but taking that responsibility for the self and being able to acknowledge and delve or explore those vulnerabilities and that, the depths of those wounds, to be able to do that, that can be the game changer. That can turn things around. Being able to acknowledge and take responsibility is the path to healing.
0: And what might be the next step?
2: It's it's confronting that insecurity and finding a way to heal the insecurity, finding a way to form the secure attachments that will be, and whether that be a therapist or a, another kind of relationship, it's a relationship where
0: magic happens. Mm. I guess it's asking the question, why don't I deep down feel whole?
2: Yes. And how can yeah. I
0: start to foster that kind of wholeness? Yeah,
2: yeah. A person who really wants to understand themselves more deeply and is prepared to do the hard work, kind of brave work of that, there's a lot of hope. There's a lot of reason to think that if I can step outside of my comfort zone, take a risk to be vulnerable, then I can heal those wounds that have caused me to kind of build up these barriers around myself for so many years. So it's difficult and it's painful. But it's worth being prepared to be that vulnerable Mm. and build some security that has been lacking.
0: A big thank you to Sarah, Lee and Nettie for being part of this episode and sharing their personal stories. Now, I've got some great topics planned for the rest of Season 3, so if you'd like to help make them possible, then go to GoFundMe.com and search for Are You Mental? Lee Hammock, who you've heard in this episode, does a lot of work online for the victims of narcissistic abuse, as well as helping other narcissists turn their behavior around. So if you'd like to follow him, he is at Mental Healness. that's at M-E-N-T-A-L-H-E-A-L-N-E-S-S across all social media platforms. Speaking of social media, you can follow our Instagram at Mental Podcast. Our website is areyoumental.com, and if you want to email me, I'm mick at and please rate and review the show on your podcast app so that more people get to hear it. And a big thank you to Love It Media for all their resources and expertise. In particular, Josh Couch, Sam Donkin, Steph Sol Lovey Maul, and Phil Guyan. If this episode has brought anything up for you and you want to talk to someone, no matter where you are in the world, you can go to checkpointorg.com global for a list of local helplines. And if you're in Aotearoa, New Zealand, you can call 1737 at any time of the day or night. See you back here soon for another episode, and until then, have a mental week.